Hey all, Tuesday Morning Rod here, just welcoming you and introducing you to a podcast episode. This is the latest in our series on the Psalms. We've kind of reached the end of the part of the series where we look at Psalms of orientation and disorientation and new orientation. This is a final week where we got everyone to share what they thought the gifts of Psalms of Orientation and Disorientation were and how we might integrate those gifts into our community. Uh, Ideally, I guess, a community of new orientation. So people shared their thoughts, um, which means that this podcast is a bit um, gappy. There are silences uh, while we're waiting for new contributions. What I have done is cut out some of the bigger gaps from that, but but basically it is, um, yeah, like a meandering discussion of the gifts of Psalms of orientation and disorientation. At the beginning, there is a very short psalm. It's the shortest psalm in the Bible, Psalm 117, which I read as part of a Lectio Divina practice, um, but that that was quite an extended practice with uh, lots of silences, so I cut I cut that out, but I did leave the psalm in. So this podcast starts with the psalm, and then it jumps to um, the discussion of the gifts of orientation and disorientation for our community. And it finishes with uh, another five-minute meryl. Um, this five-minute meryl is... An introduction to what we're doing this coming Sunday, which is looking at metaphors for God, the different metaphors for God, both human and non-human that we find in the Psalms. So I'd recommend listening to that uh, just to prepare yourself for this coming Sunday if you're going to be there. And it uh, is an accompaniment to this week's weekly note, which is on Psalm 36. I uh, hope that all makes sense. Um, I guess the only other thing I wanted to say is that I hope you're all doing okay. I hope people aren't too um, drastically affected by stage four restrictions. And don't forget that we do have that COVID event on our Facebook page if you want to get in touch and um, if you have any needs or anything that you would like help with. Okay, so lots of love to you all, and I will hand over to myself reading Psalm 117. Uh, We're going to do a short Lectio Divina. So for those that don't know, Lectio Divina is just a reflective reading. And we gave you in the weekly note the shortest psalm in the Psalms, Psalm 117. So I'm going to read it. Uh, three times. The first time I read it, uh, I'll read it and then we'll have a minute of silence. So the first time I read it, I want you to listen to it. um, It's similar to to last week. Listen to it um, from the perspective of the orientation phase of life and faith. Um, Read it from that place of um, faith when everything seems good in a straightforward way. God is in control and... um, Everything is going to work out. 
So we'll do that for the first reading. The second reading will do the disorientation phase and the third re reading will do the new orientation phase. Psalm 117. Praise Yahweh, all you nations. Worship God, all you peoples. For God's steadfast love towards us is great and the faithfulness of God endures forever. Hallelujah. So just a reminder of what I said at the beginning today for, for those that have uh, arrived a bit later. Um, so today is a day when we're keen to hear from you. Uh, we've been looking at um, the Psalms of Orientation, God is in control, everything is as it should be. Psalms of Disorientation, where everything falls apart, and Psalms of New Orientation, where we find a new sense of order that includes and allows room for the gifts of our experience of disorder. And Shane asked last week, what do we think are the gifts of orientation, orientation psalms? What are the gifts of disorientation and disorientation psalms? Um, what are the gifts of these phases of faith and how can we integrate them into uh, the life of our community? How can we integrate them into a, a phase of, of new orientation? Um, I said before, in the past, as a community, perhaps, you know, and it was necessary for a time, I think we kind of rejected and critiqued earlier phases of, of church life that we've been a part of. But I guess part of maturing is being able to, to not just transcend, but also include earlier phases of life. Um, so that's what we're trying to reflect on this morning. So I wonder if anyone has anything that they've reflected on during the week or just this morning, ways in which um, those sounds of orientation, ways in which your own experience of orientation earlier in life, um, things about that that you missed, things about that that are, that are gifts that, that can be offered to our community. Uh, and the same for, let's start with, let's maybe start with orientation. So we'll start with orientation, then we'll move to disorientation. So are there any things about orientation? Um, things about the Psalms that we reflected on in the Psalms of Orientation that you think are gifts to this community? Um, just from the Psalm in particular, I think like there's just a sense of just such like wide-eyed hope that like the idea that everyone would feel God's love, like in the orientation phase, I remember, yeah, like my early days, just like the sense of like real hope that, um, yeah, that like the whole world would know how good things can be and how good God is. And um, yeah, I just think like from the orientation phase, it's just such a beautiful feeling and a beautiful sense like before things all fall apart that the world could actually be that way and that um, there's something in that experience that I hope to return to at some point. Yeah. It, um, it reminds me a bit of... Um when I think of orientation psalms, of the experience of becoming a parent and the way, uh, like, for example, your, your relationship with Christmas and the way um, as a young adult your relationship with Christmas can become so jaded and you're so allergic to the commercialization and to the way um, it's been kind of corrupted and, and then children come into your life and none of that goes away, none of that awareness goes away, but their delight, their wonder um, just balances that sense of jadedness and allows you to be kind of 
in touch with both things, that this thing remains a thing of, of wonder, this thing remains um, beautiful, even though you are so much still in touch with all the ways in which it is commercialized and corrupted. Was there anything else that anyone wanted to talk about with that yeah, orientation phase of, of life and faith and psalms before we move on to disorientation? These days, I cringe a little bit when I think back to some of those times. Yeah, I was thinking of um, some of the songs that I used to sing in Sunday school and then kind of uh, early stages of youth group and just incredible. One, one that I was thinking about this week was, uh, it's a happy day and I praise God for the weather. It's a happy day and I'm living it for my God or something like that. I can't even remember the words, but um, just the, the saccharine spirituality. And yet there was something that <laughs> I obviously connected with when I was that age because I sang them. I was thinking and remembering that feeling of just spilling over and you get it from this psalm that being just so in love with God and so um, so certain about God's presence and love and all of this positive stuff that it just it felt normal to, to sing these songs and to sing them in groups and the validation of having it being surrounded by that as well. Um, I've, and I've got a memory of um, one time a friend at youth group brought one of their um, non-Christian, non-church background friends along. And his comment, he was like quite a thoughtful guy. His comment on the singing was, uh, it, it just seemed weird. It seems like, seems like you're trying to kind of keep telling yourself something to make yourselves believe it, um, which now I see, but back then I didn't get that perspective at all. It was just like, no, this stuff is just so good. Why wouldn't you sing about it? Like, I just, I was so in that mm. orientation phase um, that that perspective didn't resonate at all. Um, and it just, it just seemed natural to burst out into song about how great everything was and how great God was. Mm. Just wild to think back on now. Mm. I think it has a function um, in that early stage of faith. Uh, that positiveness and that excitement and that being on fire for God uh, is motivating. And it actually motivates you to drill down further and to learn more and to um, actually practice it in your relationships with other people and in every part of your life. And in that sense, it's good. The danger, uh, as um, probably everyone here knows, is the issue that if we believe that this is going to solve all our problems of life, then when something goes wrong, or when we are um, met with other people within the church who um, make life difficult for us, uh, there's the risk that it, as it all comes crashing down that we can actually lose our faith, and that's the real um, challenge with the disorientation phase, I think. 
It makes me think about that metaphor of talking about with a life of faith, you need to dig a well, you know, three or four metres deep to, to get to the water. Um, and so you have to have great motivation to, to do that digging. Um, but the terrible danger is that you, you're driven to dig for three or four metres down and then there's no water at the bottom of the well. Um, whereas if you do find water, then, then you can look back and you can go, that was, that was worth it, the, the drive and that passion and that energy and that positivity was worth it because I, I reached water and, and that allows me to rest. But, yeah, if you feel like you're flogged to dig and dig and dig and then there was no water in the bottom of the well, then the, the sense of, of rage and resentment is so, um, so deep. Pardon the pun. So speaking of rage and resentment, that seems like a nice segue to uh, speaking about the gifts of disorientation. Um, so what, just from our own experience of disorientation, from the Psalms of disorientation that we read, what do you think are the gifts of disorientation to a community that might no longer be in that phase or, or a community where some of us are in a phase of new orientation, some of us remain in disorientation, but what are the gifts of disorientation for, for us as a community? I'm just gonna jump in quickly because there's no yelling in our house right now. So um, <laughs> I'll only ask a second, but, um, but just deep empathy. Um, so even when you're not in a season of disorientation anymore, having experiencing it, experiencing it and knowing it um, can give you just such a deep empathy for the lives of others beyond you, which I think is a really beautiful gift to hold on to. I think in addition to that, once people know that you've gone through something, people will come to you with their, with their pain as well. So it's sort of, you go from seeing no pain in your own life or in anyone else's to seeing so much. Um, but it makes, it builds community and it, I mean, it's great to be vulnerable and you don't need to be vulnerable when things are great. And you kind of see that playing out in our community, that our whole community, our community as a whole kind of ends up becoming this magnet for phases of disorientation because it becomes a safe place for people to metabolize it. Like, yeah. Any other thoughts on disorientation? Um, questioning and uncertainty. They're really uncomfortable places to be and like maybe the positive resolution to them only comes in a new orientation when you get to be comfortable with uncertainty and questioning, but it's definitely something that the disorientation gives. And the fact is that the world is really mysterious and incomprehensible and, and we can never truly know. Uh, it's difficult to say that we can really truly know anything about um, God, even though we, you know, we, we claim to, or we, you know, we want to say that we can have some kind of encounter, but we can never be absolutely certain. And that's one of the most horrible things about the initial orientation phase is just how so much damage can be done 
by people who are absolutely certain that they're right, even with the best intentions. I think disorientation can really give uh, humility and um, and good questioning of of yourself and others, and sometimes sucks, but mm. I think it's really necessary. I just wanted to. Say I was going to point out that the. Um... Oh, sorry, Stuart, just uh, Louise, and then you. Yeah. Okay. So go, Louise. Thank you. Um, yeah, right. I really appreciate um, the exercise, I suppose you could say, of going through the psalm in three different phases. And um, the one of disorientation to me uh, brings back uh, a time when, when, you know, I've been in a very dark place and um, it's very hard to engage with scripture and, um, and, and God and even pray. Um, and, and what I found was a little bit what Shane said at the beginning of that it's a, a psalm that would, would give hope in orientation, but in disorientation, it, it still gives hope. But, but I can remember a time, you know, when, when really it, you didn't have any emotion about it, like you weren't bubbling over like in orientation, but, but there was no emotion, but the words were just like a thread of hope particularly the last line, you know, and, and it was just something that um, not necessarily this psalm, but some of the scriptures I would look at and they, they would have no emotion towards me, but they would have um, sort of just words, a bit like a mantra. Mm. And without any emotion, you would just read them and think, well, I know this is true because I've been there, um, but I don't feel it at the moment. And, and, that's all I can say. It's a thread of hope when mm. you're going through a, a dark period. Mm. Um, and, you know, the, this scripture is a good example of, of how you can just hang on to it, even if you may not feel it. Mm. It's like when you, in, a, in any kind of relationship or friendship or marriage or whatever it might be, when you go through difficult times, the way that your history is often the only thing that you have to hold on to those the, those memories of the way it used to be can carry you through the time when it doesn't feel like there's there's anything there yeah Stuart you, you were going to say something I was going to say the the orientation phase can actually be a uh, a wood pile if you would for some churches so when you get into the disorientation phase it's oh, you lost your first love, you've walked away from God and it's kind of tipped on top of your head um, because it's all your fault. Mm. Yeah. That, the walking away from God thing too also reminds me of um, what we are talking about a few weeks ago, the way that disorientation is the way to um, kill the aspects of the God that you had during that orientation phase so that... Um, you can find a new, um, deeper sense of God, a God that isn't a transactional God perhaps, but a God that is a God of, of deep compassion and of um, non-coercion. And so that idea that, that one of the gifts of disorientation is that it, is an, a, it brings about a necessary death of a limited God um, so that there's the opportunity to have a more expanded view of God. And if, as, as we said a few weeks ago, that's a repeated process, then it's this idea that through life we are constantly moving through phases of 
disorientation to to allow a continued expansion of our sense of who who God is that allows us to be um, a better image of God in our relationships with other people as well. Any final thoughts? So just the last little, before we move to communion, just, just the last phase is that second question of integration. And we've obviously touched on a lot of that already, but are there any other ways in which you think, ways in which we can integrate or allow space for the gifts of orientation and disorientation in within our community in the way that we, we meet, in the way that we spend time together, in the way that we um, understand our community? Any other ways that you think we could integrate those gifts of orientation and disorientation? I think there's one thing we're already doing well. It's giving people permission to ask questions and express doubts uh, and express worries and concerns and say, well, I don't, don't exactly know how this works. Because in expressing that and in sharing it, uh, we can actually find our way through it to a stage of new orientation and a more real understanding of God. One thing I thought of this week was just the, the idea of intimacy allows um, us to, I guess, reconnect with those other phases in, in other people's lives. The more we know other people who are in those different phases, the, the more we can um, occupy that space with them in a way. I mean, it's like what I was saying before about Christmas. I think if you have people that you know and love who are in the orientation phase or the disorientation phase, then there's ways in which you can reconnect with the gifts of that. Uh, there's ways in which you can sing their songs and they can learn to sing yours. You can sing the songs that they need to sing in the season that they occupy, just as they might learn to sing the songs that you need to sing in your season. Um, and that a lot of that is ability to, to have space for all of those different phases is a question of, of intimacy and knowing each other and loving each other. Are we done? Thanks. Thanks everyone for um, those things that you shared. As we said last week, if you want to, if you, we said, you know, if you wanted to write in stuff that could be shared this week, you could do that. But there's also, um, yeah, if there's other thoughts that you had that you didn't feel comfortable sharing in this context or things that you think of later that you want to, to share that could perhaps be part of a weekly note or anything like that, just, just let us know um, because, yeah, it's just so lovely to hear from people. With, with communion, uh, I, I was reflecting uh, this week on, on the cross, on Jesus' death and on communion um, and, and thinking about Jesus' death in the light of those different phases of orientation, disorientation and new orientation. Um, that in the orientation phase of life, I guess the idea that Jesus died for me uh, is often very transactional. So that idea that Jesus died in my place, um, I was bad, Jesus was good, and so we swapped places, that kind of, of framing of the cross. Um, and then in the disorientation phase, it's 
perhaps easier to connect with the idea of Jesus being abandoned, Jesus dying in solidarity with all those abandoned by God. Um, and I wonder if in a new, new orientation, uh, we develop that ability to hold all of these metaphors in tension, to recognise that one image of what the cross means or how it works is never going to be adequate. I feel like at times in our community we have tried to, pardon the pun, but nail down the meaning of the cross to, to one thing. And I do wonder whether part of developing um, a community of new orientation is, is being comfortable with, with different metaphors and different meanings sitting alongside each other. Certainly that's exactly what we see in the Gospels. We have four different stories of Jesus' death and different, really different theologies of the cross, different ideas of what the cross means. If you look at the Gospel of John, we see the crucifixion of a serene Jesus seemingly in control of the whole process, seemingly um, giving up his spirit at the moment of his choosing. Whereas in, in Mark and the other synoptic gospels, we see often a doubting and defeated Jesus uh, crying out in abandonment at the moment of death. These are, these are such different images. And I think it is the Bible, the gospels inviting us to, to recognise that the cross can never be reduced to just one thing. Um, and that believing that Jesus died for you doesn't mean that there's only one way to understand that. And I think communion is the same. People have fought and died over tiny differences in their belief about what the bread and the wine mean, what they are, about what is actually happening when we eat and drink together. But in the end, Jesus just told us to do it. Jesus didn't tell us what it meant. Jesus just told us to do it. Um, and I think Jesus recognised that there will always be space for it to mean different things, always space for it to mean more. Um, but that's exactly why we just need to keep doing it, leaving space for all of us and all the different things we bring to this bread and this wine. Um, so it, it means that communi communion becomes a wonderful symbol, I guess, of our unity and our diversity, a beautiful symbol of the hospitality of God who welcomes us to the table and accepts us as we are and welcomes us to eat and drink um, whatever it is that we understand that Jesus is offering us in this gift of grace. Um, having said all that, I have, oh yes, I do have some coffee left, so I have something to eat, or to drink at least. Uh, so let's eat and drink together um, and remember this, I guess reflect on this as a symbol of our unity and our difference and the fact that we are all welcomed by God to the same table. Amen. Hey, it's Tuesday, Rod, again, just um, taking over for a second as a way of um, softening the transition from that conversation to um, Merrill's contribution this week. And a reminder that this is really about next week and it accompanies this week's weekly note, which is on Psalm 36. Uh, we're looking at metaphors for God. So over to you, Merrill. Hi again. I want to look today at uh, the idea of how God is addressed in the Psalms. Um, thinking back to Martin Buber, the great Jewish um, theologian and scholar, 
who who thinks about the relationship with God as being an I-thou relationship, always dialogue, in other words, intimate, intimate dialogue. The images of God, the metaphors that are used for God in the Psalms say a lot about how this this dialogue goes, how the relationship is at any given time. And like everywhere else in the Bible, there's such a broad range um, that every part of life is represented there, all the longings and hopes and joys of being human and trying to be in a relationship with this God who's at once totally unknown and also known. Um, are demonstrated by the many different metaphors that are used for God. So who is the thou that I am talking to? Depends very much on how I'm experiencing God at a particular time. And I think it's really important to also realise that many of the metaphors, or the metaphors cover both the human and the non-human aspect. So God can be at once my rock and my deliverer. And there's a kind of balance there that stops us imagining God too much just in our own image, but also um, does does involve the intimacy of human relationships. So my rock and my deliverer in some ways sum up just about the whole of what's going on there, except that sometimes God is also a very difficult person to have a relationship with and therefore um, God is the enemy. I suppose the most um, overwhelming image of God is God as king Um, and of course that metaphor is very much related to the longing for just rulers, for for justice from a whole political point of view right down to um, every little detail of life for a voice to speak for those who are voiceless. But beneath that, there are many, many uh, related images that are both positive and negative, I think. One is warrior, um, very much related to the king, uh, the strong protector whose job is to stand between me and my enemy to protect. But also sometimes that's the enemy. uh, God is the enemy. God is the warrior who has sold Israel out to its enemies or God is the one who is attacking me at the moment and I don't know why but often the warrior is also the deliverer and that word deliverer Yeshua um, is the word that Jesus comes from of course um, the Hebrew version of that so it's it's an interesting metaphor that can be seen as positive and negative and as we've already seen Um, the Israelites didn't mince their words when they felt that God was not on their side. They had no trouble saying. Um, A differently nuanced metaphor which which comes from the same kind of field is that of refuge. It's used so often. Uh, God is my refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. I, uh, I couldn't begin to go through all the Psalms that use the term refuge. And in some ways, it's it's a bit like the warrior, that which keeps me safe, but here in a more enfolding, enclosing sort of way. So again, this longing for a safe place, um, some space in which I can be without uh, being attacked by those around me. And again, the refuge was the responsibility of the king, but it's also linked very much to a shepherding image, 
where it's got the sense of care and nurture, um, protection. Um, so that sort of comes through more strongly in the, the refuge. And the refuge might be the sense of a cave or even the sanctuary, the, the um, temple or place of worship, or um, a high tower. There are all sorts of different ways of imagining that refuge. And again, um, we're taken into so many wonderful images of what people were imagining when they were thinking about God and thinking about their lives and working out what they needed at the time. Um, one of the things that there are not very many female images for God in the Psalms, but there are a couple. Um, one of the things that's linked to refuge is the idea of taking safety under God's wings. And that is very much a mother bird image. Um, that that sense that Jesus sets out, I suppose, very, very um, clearly in the New Testament, um, talking about Jerusalem. I wish that I was a mother hen that you could nestle under my wings and that comes from this this metaphor that's found um, reasonably prevalent um, throughout the psalms another one i think is hospitality and i think of psalm 36 35 one of those um can't remember at the moment uh, of of being a fountain of hospitality and of course the one who most provided the hospitality was the woman who would be doing the cooking or overseeing the cooking, that sense of spreading a feast. So there are some images and, and, you know, just dipping in, dipping the tiniest toe in the water of the images of God and that sense of who, how we need to address God is so much part of this idea of real dialogue, not pretending, not dressing it up, but whatever it is that... I need to say to God at the moment, finding the language that most clearly spells that out and helps me um, come into that place of absolute integrity where I'm saying what it is that I need to say and not pretending. Okay, that's enough for one day. Bye. Bye.